Hello, and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Today, we continue our discussion of the Biden tax plan, but we've tried to look at the business side of the Biden plan and really touch on what you call, I think, the largest tentpole ideas. We've done an episode on the proposal to raise the corporate rate and the proposal to tax foreign earnings. Now, today, we turn to the other big tentpole in the Biden plan, and one of the really more interesting and, I think, innovative proposals in the overall plan from candidate Biden, his proposal to reinstate a corporate AMT, but in a very different way from the old corporate AMT that we once knew. To tackle this topic, today we are joined by a special guest and my colleague, Tom West. Tom is a principal in Washington National Tax, and prior to joining KPMG, was Tax Legislative Counsel at the Treasury Department's Office of Tax Policy during both the Obama and the Trump administrations. Tom, while you were at Treasury, this is exactly the kind of issue I think would have likely fallen to you to try and implement, so I'm very much looking forward to some of your thoughts on the contours of this proposal today. Just to sort of set up this discussion, Tom, it feels like we just repealed the corporate AMT back in December of 2017. Look, I know that seems like a lifetime ago, considering all the things that have transpired since then. But for taxpayers, that's only been two filing seasons. And it's not like this idea of repealing the corporate AMT came out of nowhere. There have been proposals to repeal the corporate AMT that have been kicking around Capitol Hill for decades. In fact, as I recall, the House of Representatives voted to repeal the corporate AMT all the way back in 2002. Now, that never made it into law. I think it was blocked by the Senate. But this is not exactly a new idea. So here we are now, suddenly, just two filing seasons later, talking about reinstating the corporate AMT. You know, in the last episode, I think we talked about sort of how is it possible that a Biden proposal and a Trump proposal could ultimately come so close together in the case of taxing foreign earnings. I think we can say that here, too. So let me just read to you two quotes, and then we'll jump into the conversation, Tom. Here's quote one. And by the way, I've modified these quotes slightly just to make them easier to read. But these are absolutely the quotes. I've just edited out some, some of the words. So full disclosure on that. But here's quote one. Quote, we can pay for these investments by ending loopholes and the president's tax giveaway to the most profitable corporations, some of which paid no tax at all. Well, whose quote is that? That is candidate Joe Biden in his acceptance speech at the Democratic National Convention. So, look. He's talking here, I think, very specifically about his corporate AMT proposal to tax companies that pay no tax at all. So that's quote one. Here's quote two, and this is from uh, an article in the Washington Post. Economic advisors to the White House have suggested President Trump propose a new minimum tax on corporations. The idea, an attempt to blunt criticism that the GOP tax law allowed many large corporations to wipe out their federal corporate taxes altogether. So these two quotes, one talking about what Biden's proposal is, and another one coming from inside the White House that we should bring back the corporate AMT suggests that maybe candidate Biden and President Trump aren't that far apart on this issue altogether. So question one to you, Tom, how is it that just a couple of years later, we're already talking about bringing the corporate AMT back? Why such a sudden reversal in this policy view, do you think? Yeah, John, um, I don't want to get too technical or too weedy on you, but I can give you some scoop, some inside the room where it happened, insight on TCJA. It wasn't terribly bipartisan, ultimately, right? So the fact that you're just two years later hearing talk of reversing some of the significant changes in TCJA shouldn't necessarily come as a surprise. I think you're right to observe that both 
the Biden proposal and some of the rumblings out of the White House are kind of similar. And and let's also keep in mind, even in TCJA, right up until the end, I don't think the Senate proposal had repeal of the corporate AMT included. That was really a House provision. And I think from the House side, it was tied to making full expensing or bonus depreciation more effective. I think they kind of said, if we don't repeal corporate AMT, going to pull back all the benefit we're trying to give with 100% bonus. So that sets the stage for where TCJA was. Why is there appeal to a corporate AMT or, or a minimum tax of some sort? I think, you know, historically, it's a pretty easy top line policy to understand. It's pretty digestible for the layperson. So from the Biden proposal perspective, rather than getting into the weeds and talking about all the different parts of TCJA and all the different tax preferences you might go after. I think there's a lot of digestibility in saying, look at these rich corporations who aren't paying any tax. Isn't that unfair? I think that's something that has a lot of populist appeal. And from the Trump administration's perspective, while you know you, you see a lot of different kinds of populist positions coming out occasionally out of the White House, whether or not there's any follow through on them. Put that aside for a minute. But again, there's a certain populist appeal to the idea of a corporate minimum tax, putting aside the effectiveness and the efficiency in terms of the tax system, just talking about the appeal of it. Does that make sense? It it does. And it's interesting, as you say that, talking about why we think there's this appeal now on perhaps both sides of the aisle. It's funny you said that, you know, that it seems to be now being positioned and I think you can see it in that Biden quote that I gave you, that this is about making sure that companies that, for whatever reason, aren't paying tax currently, pay their share. Right? And I think that's the way it is, which is a shift, I think, in the way the AMT was thought of. You know, back in, I referenced the attempt to repeal the corporate AMT way back in the early 2000s. At the time, the push behind it was, they called it, and I think the catchphrase at the time was, the kick them while they're down tax, right? So, I'm losing money. I've got all this, you know, financial hardship. And you're, while I'm down, you're going to kick me with the AMT and still make me pay tax while I'm struggling to kind of get by. The policy angle on it has kind of reversed itself now to say the opposite. Hey, you're not paying tax. You're making money. You're not paying tax. You should pay your fair share. I think it's one of the interesting uh, turns. Is that right, uh, Tom, that you think that this isn't really about trying to obviously kicking people while they're down? This is saying you have some profitability. You should be paying some level of tax. Yeah, I, I agree. And Over the years, there have been, as you suggest, there have been attempts to pull this back, but going all the way back to when this was put into effect, I think the first corporate AMT was back in the late 1960s, and of course the 1986 Act significantly revised the corporate AMT. In both those situations, there was bipartisan support to look at situations where it was obvious there were some big American corporations who were not paying any tax, and again, That's because of the tax preferences that Congress had enacted. Nonetheless, I think there's an equitable argument that just saying these corporations are obviously profitable in in some definition, let's have them pay their fair share. Right. And I want to come back to that point about these other items that, you know, create complex interactions with the AMT, because I I don't think. You know, look, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I don't think what people are saying is these companies that are paying no tax are doing anything untoward. I think that you know they're they're using the law as it currently exists. But the question is, even so, should you be paying some tax? So, okay, 
we, we said that maybe, maybe, right, that, you know, the Biden campaign and the Trump administration, maybe theoretically, possibly, if you believe that Washington Post article, could see eye to eye to a certain extent on exploring bringing back the corporate AMT. But there got to be differences, right? So, you know, when we talk about the, the Biden proposal versus the old corporate AMT, there are big differences, right? Can you just outline what some of those are? Yeah, I think there are very significant differences. The Biden proposal has a completely different tax base than anything we've seen before. The Biden tax would be 15% tax on global book income. So not on taxable income, which almost all of our corporate taxes, you know, aside from excise taxes, are on taxable income. And this is putting aside that concept and looking at a company's gap financials and saying, we're going to tax you based on your gap profitability, a real sea change. Now, that wouldn't apply to all companies. I think the Biden proposal says it would apply to companies that have book income of over $100 million and pay little to no federal income tax, federal corporate income tax. But that's very significant. That hits a very different base than the old AMT. Under the old AMT system, corporations had to keep two different sets of tax books so that you had your regular tax books and then you had your AMT tax books. The old AMT, the old corporate AMT, as, as far as I remember, through about 2015, I think they had pretty good information. There were about 10,000 corporations in the United States who would pay corporate AMT. I believe what I've read under the Biden proposal, it would hit only about 300 corporations. Talking about very different bases here. And one of the interesting things is you say that because that's a really, really big difference. I mean, it's all, you just can't even you know explain. I mean, if, you, if it doesn't resonate with you, it's a really big difference. Trust me, this is a really big difference from the old corp, corporate AMT. But one of the real criticisms, as you just outlined, Tom, of the old corporate AMT was this complexity of having to maintain two sets of taxable income. Right? We here's our regular tax, and then we have this separate parallel system over here, which is taxable income and the add back these preference items. And it was highly complex. You had carry forward. You had all these things you had to deal with. And for a lot of things, I guess you could argue if you don't like the Biden proposals. One thing I think that they would claim, and maybe this will turn out not to be true, but it, it, it is not as complex as the old system because I think they would say, hey, you're, you're already calculating book income. Right? You've got book income already. So it's not like we're forcing you to have this parallel tax calculation that you're running every year. You're just going off of your book income, which you're, you're already using for purposes of financial reporting. So maybe, maybe there is, it's at least not quite as complex as the old system is one appeal of it. So, but just back to this idea of book income, because Tom, thinking about your, your time at Treasury, you know, a lot of what you did there was try and figure out as these legislative ideas come across from the legislative branch to the executive branch, right? The executive branch's job is to execute the law and try and figure out what is a way to make this administrable. So this big change you talked about using book income, how complex do you think that would be for the IRS to try and figure out how to implement and ultimately enforce a law based upon not taxable income, but on book income? The mind reels a little bit as a, someone who used to write tax regulations in terms of trying to implement this. I do think, depending on how in, in the weeds they wanted to get with it, there there is an appeal to it. I, I As you said, the companies who would be subject to this tax are already calculating their book income. They're already reporting out those numbers to the public markets. Those numbers are audited. And so there is some degree of comfort behind those numbers. Now, 
the IRS has never had to look at those numbers, of course, and the IRS and Treasury would be ceding a certain amount of authority to, you know, FASB and to, to the, the entities that control gap accounting principles. And so I think that's a change. I really haven't gotten my head around all of the implementation that would be required. But I do have to say, I mean, we've just seen in the last two and a half years, the Treasury Department and IRS implement something like 163J and all of the changes to the international tax regime. I don't think it could be any more complicated than those concepts. So yeah, I think it would be a challenge. I don't think it's been entirely thought through, but the IRS and Treasury would be up to the challenge. Well, it is quite a challenge. And I guess, you know, one of the the things that they'll have to figure out is just what you talked about, right, which is, you know, uh, IRS tax professionals are tax people. They're not versed in the, the ways of financial accounting uh, is, is point one. Point two is book income is designed for a totally different purpose, right, than taxable income. These two things exist in parallel for most companies, but the, the, the systems are designed to sort of focus on different things. And maybe that's, I guess that's exactly the point from Biden's point of view, which is, yeah, the tax system is so inherently broken. And I think, you know, it's fair to say that he got some of these ideas from Elizabeth Warren's real corporate profits tax proposal, which had a similar book income base. And I think the way she looked at it is, you know, the corporate tax system is so inherently broken and riddled with loopholes, it basically cannot be saved. And so we need some alternative measure to, to really determine who's making money. And I guess that's part of the appeal of it. But as I was saying, book income is so inherently different. And let's not forget, there's not just one measure of book income. We've got GAP. We've got IFRS. So, you know, talking to this to a couple of our clients, they've pointed out to me that you might otherwise look identical to your competitor, but one could be on GAP and one could be on IFRS. And otherwise, at every other measure, identical, but get very different numbers for purposes of this tax and question whether or not that's really a fair outcome. So this is just one complexity that I think you're right, Tom. IRS is probably would be, uh, they've proven over and over that they can tackle these things, like as we saw out of the TCJA, but it won't be easy. Okay, one last question for you then. So in the mechanics of how this works, Biden has said that you know offsets to his AMT are foreign tax credits and NOLs, right? So you're going to get your global book income layer in is these offsets, your foreign tax credits and potentially NOL carry forwards. But you alluded to this all along about the old system. Where does this leave all these other tax preference items we have, like you said, bonus depreciation or general business credits, special deductions, all these things? What does it mean for those items in this new AMT regime? Yeah, I, I certainly think some of the incentives that the current system has in place would be, you know, the value of things like bonus depreciation would be significantly carved back for companies who became subject to this minimum tax. At, at the same time, I mean, we already have, you, you were saying it in talking about the comparison of IFRS and, and you know, book income and gap. The comparison to the tax system is the tax system broken i don't know we, we could we, we could argue that on a different podcast maybe but we do know that the tax system is riddled with complexity and contradictory provisions throughout and so when you know you say is this new tax to the extent it's going to be applied against book income interfering with some of the incentives or credits that we have uh, in the existing tax code uh, the answer is obviously yes, but at the same time, it's not like we have this ideal 
tax system, right? We have a giant Rube Goldberg machine that's full of complexity all over the place. And so I think some of the appeal of a provision like this is that rather than getting in and tinkering with each of the general business credit provisions and tinkering with the depreciation provisions and having to fight to do all of those changes and then change the regulations with respect to all of those provisions. I think there's kind of a some appeal, frankly, some simplification if there's this overlay that says we're going to hit you with a tax on global book income. Now, I think ideally, you would have a system where you did go in and you'd fix the tax code and you make the tax code more simple and, and more efficient. But I don't know that we've proven up to that task over the years. So, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I don't know, Tom. I was promised that we would be doing tax returns on a postcard. Um, I haven't done mine yet. <laughs> but, uh, maybe, maybe as you and I have joked before, it just all depends on the size of the postcard ultimately, right? Uh, yeah, but it's ultimately possible. But, you know, to that point, it's a totally fair point. And I just, I guess I expect that if this thing ever got traction and we ever tried to do this based on book income that you would see, I would expect a big push to add other items in as offsets. So, you know, people will argue that we should provide offsets for the bonus or we should provide offsets for this particular incentive system, you know, for wind or solar or whatever it might be so that we don't undermine that. And we've already seen that with the beat where the beat to a certain extent takes away some of those incentives because it operates as its own kind of parallel alternative minimum tax system. So these are the kind of debates that I would expect to see. Yes. And what you put me in mind of big sweeping proposals like the destination-based cash flow tax, right? That was an opening bid in tax reform. It was a sincere bid, I think, but when there was pushback against some of the concepts in there, we did end up in a place where some of the concepts, some of the expensing concepts, some of the, the bonus depreciation, that all got incorporated. And so maybe you think about this minimum tax proposal as, you know, an opening bid. And I'm not saying that it's not a sincere one, but it brings, if, if this is what brings people to the table to start debating which of these incentives are important, are we going to talk about, you know, expensing? Are we going to talk about alternative energy credits, which of course the Biden proposals are, are in favor of a lot of renewable energy proposals. So I, I think it's a, I think it's fascinating. And the one thing we can count on is that the tax reform wheel continues to turn, I guess. <laughs> That's a good point. And I think we said in one of our other podcasts, you know, the best policy idea in the world is meaningless without the votes. And so you're right. This is an idea and it may be a good idea, but in the end, it's got to it's got to run the political gauntlet of Capitol Hill, and we may end up with some minimum tax again. If you believe even the, the Trump administration maybe doesn't think that's the worst idea in the world, but maybe it ends up looking a lot more like the old corporate AMT or some hybrid between the old corporate AMT and something that Biden is proposing. And it's just one of those things we're going to have to see evolve over time. Well, exactly. Tom, that was excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, in closing, just one observation. You know, in a, a long time ago in a different universe, uh, this truly happened. I worked at the Ways and Means Committee, and I ran a tax reform hearing where we proposed actually using book income as a substitute for tax, taxable income. And we did that in the interest of simplification, the idea that 
because bulk income is typically higher. Maybe you could actually use a lower corporate rate. It might make U.S. companies more competitive in that way, and it would greatly simplify things. It seemed like a good idea to me at the time, but boy, let me tell you, I've had people mad at me before, but maybe never as mad as they were at me for suggesting that idea, including both the SEC and the IRS really wanted no part of that idea. Now, that's not exactly the same thing that Biden is talking about here, but this idea of using bulk income as a measure of tax is one that is no doubt fraught with complexities, likely many of complexities, which will only materialize with experience. So I think it was as Tom was concluding there, it is, we should think of this as an idea and we should think of it as a directional idea, but not as a final idea. But I think it would be wise for, for taxpayers to begin thinking about the possibility of a minimum tax returning to the system. Well, with that, we'll leave you for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, and I hope to see you soon.